0: Our Bibles at Isaiah chapter eight and verse eleven. If you're reading and trying to figure out where the the Christmas theme is, um, you don't don't uh, kick yourself for not being able to see something that's not there. But what we find here is a in between passage with uh, last week and what we'll what we'll see next week. Isaiah seven fourteen. What we looked at last week: Emmanuel, God with us and then Isaiah 9, 1 through uh, 2 through 6 uh, a virgin uh, conceives in 7 in seven chapter 7 and in verse number 9 his name is called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace we'll be there next sunday but this this in between chapter is uh, very helpful to us and i think that you'll you'll be able to to see where, where we're going with that i was very confident with uh this passage until Donnie sent me a text this morning. and said, wow, that's a lot to, to preach from. And now I'm thinking, well, maybe it is. I don't know. I'll see how I but uh, if it hits 2 o'clock and I'm still going, I'll, I promise I'll shut her down. <clears throat> Father, help us, please, as we study Your Word. We do need your, your wisdom. We need Your Spirit to guide us in the truth. We're thankful that You do give it to us. You do not uh, seal these words and hide them from our eyes, but You open them to us and teach them to us. You feed them to us like bread, and you keep uh, you keep us alive and, and healthy with them. And we ask that this morning we may we feast on the Word. May those who um, have matured in in you and have, have learned to grow um, from the milk of the Word into the meat of the Word, would you satisfy them. And for those who are coming to the table uh, young in their faith and maybe not ready to consume all of the more advanced Christians have been been trained to do, I pray that you would feed them as well through these words today. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Now God, through Isaiah, has is, uh, given King Ahaz an opportunity to believe. We saw that last Sunday. I gave a bit of a history lesson last week to help you to understand that. And uh, I will try to refer back to that just a little bit in case if you weren't there uh, or uh, here last Sunday, or you just don't remember all of that. It was a pretty confusing story, uh, to say the least. But in in chapter seven, we saw that God had given King Ahaz, uh, the king of Judah. The nations had split. There was the nation, the southern kingdom of Judah, and the northern kingdom of Israel. And, and Ahaz was uh, faced with a dilemma. He was faced with a problem that uh, the joint nations the joint armies of the nation of Israel the northern kingdom and then the 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 nation to their north the nation of Syria or Aram have uh tried to bully their way into Judah and uh, t- take over the kingdom of Judah in an attempt to withstand the onslaught of the mighty nation of Assyria as we saw last week uh, Isaiah was sent to uh, King Ahaz to warn him to trust in God, not to trust in man. And Ahaz had a plan all of his own. He decided rather he would trust in man. He would trust in King Ahaz. He would trust in Assyria. And we saw that wonderful uh, prophecy given to an unbeliever. And yet we see the hope that cont- that is contained in Isaiah seven fourteen. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. We'll call his name Emmanuel, and it's a reminder that God is with us all the time. God is with them, even in the judgment. God is with us. Even uh, Jesus uh, was called that when he was uh, when he was born. Matthew saw the fulfillment of prophecy, and right before Jesus went back to to heaven from earth, he said, "I am with you always." And so uh, we we move on from that and move into chapter number eight, which is really a continuation of this. This same predicament that they're in. Not much time has has passed, or some time has passed, but um, and we won't try to read the first ten verses of chapter eight because it doesn't. Uh, we I think we can get we can get an understanding without it. But if you want to go back and read a little bit of chapter eight and even the last part of chapter seven, uh, it'll help to make a little bit more sense. But God has given King Ahaz an opportunity to believe. He gave him a sign of his provision and he gave him uh, his presence, even in punishment. Yet Ahaz chose to put his trust in man rather than in God. Indeed, most of Judah had chosen to trust, put their confidence in what man could do instead of what God could do. And now Isaiah is faced with the choice, and he is the one we focus on uh, this morning. We know what Ahaz chose to do. But what is Isaiah going to do? Isaiah is going to live through the tragedy and through the suffering that Judah will face. He's not immune to this. He's going to live it right along with the rest of the people. And his faith in God does not mean that danger somehow passes over him. He too will experience challenges. He'll experience difficulties, heartbreak, and loss right along with his Unbelieving brothers. Yet though Isaiah is gonna face the same circumstances as an unbelieving Judah, he will face them differently. And that's what I hope that you'll see as we go through this passage carefully. In this passage, Isaiah gives believers today hope in heartbreak. Gives us peace in the midst of storms. It gives us light in the midst of darkness. As we saw last week, as I tried to explain a little bit, the nation of Israel and Judah would both face punishment for their sin. God had given them uh, the chance to trust Him, and they would not, and they uh, would eventually both go into exile. And God was going to use this power nation of Assyria as His instrument of discipline for His people. And despite all of this, there was a promise that God had not given up on them and that He would not abandon them or utterly forsake them. Yes, there would be discipline. There would be punishment. There would be hurt, suffering, sorrow, pain. All of that. But God would not let them go completely. There would be a remnant. Yes, they would be carried away to a distant land. We read about that in stories like Daniel. And they were carried off into foreign countries like Babylon. And then later on, Persia. But, their promise that a remnant would come home. The promise of a Davidic king. That the Christ, that the throne would not depart from, uh, from Judah, uh, would, uh, would not go unfulfilled. That promise would be kept. And even as Isaiah lays out the coming judgment, both on Israel and on Judah, we see a, a glimmer of hope in the repeated phrase, Emmanuel. Now we saw it in chapter seven and verse fourteen. It actually appears twice more in uh, in the in between passages of what we uh, skipped over. But I want to back up to verse number ten of our chapter here and show you the last time it was used. Because as the as the as the title of this uh, message here is "Because God is with us," it builds on the fact of what was promised in Isaiah seven fourteen. God is with us. And because God is with us, that dictates what we go what we do from here. so look at verse number ten, it says, "Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand for God is with us, and this is a a a message to the nation of Assyria. Yes, God is going to judge uh uh Judah He's going to judge us through Assyria because we put our trust in in man but he's saying here, you, you, you're you not going to utterly consume us. You're not going to completely overwhelm us, overtake us. Why? Because God is with us. And then he goes on into verse number 11. For the Lord spoke to me. So this is the the reason because uh, that he is going to speak because God is with us. God is with his people. And we see, God's warning, first of all, in verses 11 through 16, we can divide this into some, and uh, roughly into two parts, and, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll do that, uh, try to do it this way this morning. God warned Isaiah, because I'm with you, don't walk like they do. Don't go through life. Don't face the, whatever is coming in the same way that everyone else does. Look at verse number 11, if you will. It says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Now God had come to Isaiah to warn him and to comfort him. Isaiah knew that his mission involved preaching to a people who would not hear who would not see? Who would not listen or heed his warnings? Back in chapter 6, it's a pretty familiar verse if you, uh, have been, uh, in church long and you've, you've heard the stories and you've heard some of the key verses from different books of the Bible. Back in chapter 6, uh, verse number 8, uh, Isaiah says, I heard a voice, uh, the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he, the Lord, said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I, Isaiah, said, how long, O Lord, how long am I going to have to preach this message to a a people who will not hear me? And God says, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. This is Isaiah's job interview, if you will. Isaiah is being ordained here into the ministry, and he is being told, here's your message. Preach to people that are not going to listen to you. Speak to people who will not heed your warnings. And Isaiah says, okay, how long? And God tells him until the city lies waste, until uh, the wilderness, uh, until the, 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 the uh, forsaken places are many. Basically, until judgment has been brought. They're not going to listen, but you preach anyway. And you keep preaching until the very end. How discouraging this would be to preach a message that nobody listens to. To proclaim God's truth only to have no one believe you. No one to believe your message. But this is what God spoke to him and warned him in verse 11. You're gonna preach, you're gonna speak, you're gonna warn, and they're not gonna to listen to you. So we fast forward to chapter 8 and verse 11, and he says, don't walk like they do. Don't, uh, don't act the way that they do. Don't live as these unhearing, unbelieving people. And God explains what He means by that in the following verses. He goes on in verse 12 and He says, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. And God first says, Do not think like these people think. The idea behind this conspiracy is not necessarily uh, what, the way that we consider conspiracy today, you know, like uh, that, uh, uh, aliens and, and Area area 50 whatever it is and and uh, all the different things that we call conspiracy theories. Uh but more, and sometimes some translations will even use the word confederacy here which is uh, a little bit easier to to help understand. Uh God says here, I want you to 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 not think about the situation the same way that these people think about the situation. The confederacy here or the conspiracy, the conspiring is the alliance between the nations of Judah and, and northern Assyria, and, and and this is what this is what Ahaz had 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 put together. And he believed, and the people of, it, of Judah believed that Is that Assyria was their only hope for deliverance. That Assyria was the one who would save them from the Sumerian and Aramean armies. Their only chance for survival was to look to man. And so they made this confederacy, this conspiracy. And and God tells Isaiah, don't call it what they're calling it because it's not what they think it is. Don't think the way that these people think because they're wrong. While Isaiah looked to God for help, most of Judah, including King Ahaz, was looking to the king of Assyria for help. And because Isaiah was warning them against trusting in the Assyrian help, and he even said, because you trust in them, They're going, God is going to punish you, it is very likely that many saw Him as a traitor. Many saw what He was doing, His ministry, is treasonous. But God said, don't look at the problem the same way that unbelieving Judah does. They might call it conspiracy. They might call it confederacy. But don't you think that way. And the second part of the warning there it concerns their response to their ungodly thinking. Because their thinking was wrong, their response was wrong. God told Isaiah not to fear what the people feared, or fear what the king feared, or dread what they dreaded. What did they dread? What were they afraid of? Well, if you understand the story, is they, they feared Samaria. They feared being overtaken and overcome by these uh, opposing nations and by their enemies. They feared that the enemy armies would come and do what they threatened to do if Assyria didn't step in and help soon. But God warned Isaiah, don't fear what these people fear. Don't be afraid of what they're afraid of. Yes, there's danger. Yes, there's going to be difficulty and tragedy, and Isaiah knew that better than anybody else because he heard it from God Himself. But it was not a cause to fear like these people had. Instead, how should Isaiah walk? How should he live in these dark days? God says in verse 13 that instead of placing the king of Assyria on a pedestal, instead of bowing to him, he should honor the Lord and fear him. Look at verse 13. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. To honor the Lord is to uh, uh, as holy is to exalt his power and his might over a man's. And it was, it, was, it was God's telling Isaiah, don't put your eyes on man. Honor God as holy. John Calvin commented on this verse that in some respects, God is robbed of His holiness when we do not immediately go to Him when we are perplexed. Judah and Ahaz dishonored God by ignoring His promise and looking to man instead of trusting God. And what's the result? What happens when we face these difficulties, such as Isaiah and Judah and Ahab's? It really comes down to one thing: what do you do with God? That's what—that's what he's getting to. How will we encounter God during these trying times? Each individual is going to encounter God, but in different ways. Some with good results, some with bad ones. Look at verse fourteen. He, God, will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. For those who honor the Lord as holy as God told Isaiah to do, God becomes a sanctuary in the time of trouble. In stressful times, in chaos, in confusion, and in panic, God is a refuge. He's a sanctuary. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Psalm 62 says, Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. But this refuge, this sanctuary, is only for those who fear Him, who trust in Him, who lean on His strength and not their own. For others, God is not a sanctuary. He is a rock of offense. He is a stumbling stone. He's a snare that traps many. And Isaiah said that many will stumble on it many will fall many will be broken just recently we finished in matthew chapter 11 when jesus told john the baptist disciples in matthew 11:6 he says blessed is he who is not offended by me and this is exactly what he's what he's referring back to he's referring to this verse many will stumble many will fall over the god who is both sanctuary and snare And it is because those who are offended by Him, who stumble over Him, are broken rather than blessed. Alec Mateer put it this way, the same God in His unchanging nature is both sanctuary and snare. It depends on how people react to His holiness. This is what God told Isaiah. This is how He warned him. So what would Isaiah do now? Was he going to go along with the popular thinking? With what everyone else was doing? Would Isaiah look to Assyrian might for help? Well, right away we read Isaiah's very confident stand in verse number 17. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. He says, I will wait on God. I'm going to trust his timing. I'm going to trust his plan. And notice that he says, even though God is hiding his face from us right now. The idea of, of hiding his face here means that Judah is not enjoying God's favor. When Aaron the priest back in in the book of Numbers was going to bless the people, God told him, he, he says, the Lord, uh, he told him to bless this people with these words, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It showed that God was showing favor to his people by enlightening them with his countenance, with his face. So when God was hiding his face from them, he was not blessing them. He was not uh, showing his favor on them. And and, and, and and at other times they they when they would be uh, judged and punished, they said, God is hiding his face from us. He's not blessing us with, with, his, with his presence, with His, with his, with his favor. He's, he's condemning us. He's judging us. And on Isaiah's day, it seemed that God had hidden His face from His people. They had forsaken His laws. They had rejected His ways. They had ignored His prophets. Why would God look favorably on them? Isaiah knew that God had a plan. And he was counting on God's mercy and His grace. And he was confident that God would fulfill his promises. So Isaiah said, I'm just going to wait on God. I am going to hope in Him. Regardless of what is happening right now, regardless of what it seems to be, God is hiding His face from us. We deserve it. But I will wait for Him. Because He is merciful. Now realize that Isaiah knew that God's plan involved pain there would be suffering for both Israel and Judah. Both of their futures promised it. And there was going to be no easy way out of it. The people had crossed the line and now God was going to judge them. And Isaiah wasn't saying that he hoped God would withhold the punishment. He wasn't quickly coming to God and saying, God, but you know, we're sorry, don't do this anymore. Isaiah knew exactly what was happening. And Isaiah accepted God's discipline. But he embraced the hope of his promise. He was confident that God is faithful to keep his promises even when God's people are unfaithful. But that's not all. Isaiah continues in verse number 18 that he will continue looking to God in his word. Look there, if you will. Verse number 18. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel. "...from the Lord of hosts, who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony." Isaiah recognized that he and his sons were signs and symbols. Uh, That's what the word portent means there. he is. They are signs and symbols to the people from God. They were reminders of God's promises. Isaiah's name means Yahweh saves. A very important truth at the moment, since the popular opinion was that Assyria saves. And Isaiah's name, Isaiah's very presence, was that God saves. Isaiah's first son, Shir Jashub, we read about him in chapter 7, his name means a remnant shall return. The idea of a, of a remnant means that there won't be many left. It's a small piece of the whole. but they won't be abandoned. God will not completely forsake them. A remnant will return. They might be carried away, but one day a remnant will come back. At the beginning of chapter eight, we read about Isaiah's other son Maher Shalal Hashbaz. His name means "swiftly plundered, quickly carried away." Verse three, when when of uh, chapter eight, when God told him. To name the baby this, he says, Call his name Mahershalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. And this little boy was a reminder that Judah's enemies wouldn't be around much longer. That God was going to punish their enemies. That God was going to deliver them. And it would be very quickly and it would come very soon. And in a very short time, they would be overcome by Assyria and no longer be a threat to Judah. And don't forget, there's another kid running around, and his name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And these messages weren't, weren't, weren't just just names. They weren't just, just little people. They weren't just uh, coincidences. They were symbols. They were signs. They were reminders. They were messages of what God's people needed to hear at that time. Isaiah realized that he and his sons were pointing to the truth of God's promises. Look to God, Isaiah cries. Not only does his message shout that, but his whole family symbolizes it. Trust God. He will save us. He will punish us, but He is merciful and just and faithful. So look to God. But notice that what the people were doing instead. Instead of looking to God, they were looking elsewhere. They were searching for answers, but in all the wrong places. Yes, they had questions. They wanted to know what's going to happen, but they looked in every wrong place. It says here that they were visiting the mediums and the wizards, the fortune tellers, the sorcerers, It's just a practice that's forbidden by Old Testament law. They were not to go to these, to these types of people to find uh, the answers to their questions. But they were desperate. They didn't know what else to do. There was so much fear and uncertainty. But Isaiah asks then, as we read, shouldn't they inquire of their God? Shouldn't a people inquire of the God rather than the wizard? Shouldn't they look to the living instead of the dead? And then he interjects here, to the teaching and to the testimony. It's a, it's a, it's a command. It's a, it's, it's not a question anymore. He's saying, guys, Look to the teaching. Look to the testimony. You want answers? Look to God's Word. You want to know what to do? Look in His law. You need help? Look to the testimonies. To the testimonies. To the teachings. They are true. They are faithful. They are illuminating. And they are enlightening. But these people wanted to look elsewhere. Magic. Idol worship. It's clear that Ahaz wasn't the only one who doubted God's promise. These people wanted answers. But they failed to acknowledge the One who knows all things. Verses 20-22, to we see the results that come from not looking to God. It says there, If they will not speak according to His Word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they'll be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their King and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. We see they have no light of dawn. They walk around distressed, hungry. They're upset. They're unsatisfied. Their hunger leads to anger and rage, cursing. They'll shake their fists at God and the King wondering why such misfortune has fallen upon them. They'll look up to heaven. They'll blame God for all their troubles. And then they'll look around them and all they'll see is darkness. Darkness, distress, anguish. Nothing but sadness, suffering, darkness. And finally, as if to seal their fate, they are thrust into thick darkness. They'll find themselves far away from home, in strange lands, surrounded by pagan idols, foreign languages, cruel taskmasters. Tear writes, "They are left without hope from God, from Earth or from the future." And if that's how the story ends, it's a very unfortunate, very depressing story. The way that our Bibles are are put together, that seems like the very end of the story, but as we look into chapter number nine, it connects really, and, and even in the Hebrew Bibles, the first verse of chapter nine is connected into this into this part here. It may seem like it yet. This is this is the end, but it's not. It may seem hopeless, but there is hope. Because Isaiah 9-1 begins with, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. If we read back in verse 22, they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. There is a promise of hope. There is literally light ahead. Chapter 9 continues, In the former time, He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, He made glorious the way to the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Yes, the present seems bleak. It looks as if there is no hope. God will not forget his promise even even in the way that Isaiah phrases these these uh, promises here, he sees their tragic present in the past. He sees it as a past event, looking with eyes of faith, he sees that what is today will not always be this way, and one day we will look back at this time and 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 realize it's gotten much better. Notice he said, in the former time. He's talking about right now. But he calls it the former time. In the past. He says later on, he says, the people who walked in darkness. That's then, right then. That's those people that are all around him. But he sees it as a past event. Through God's promised light, through the virgin-born son of Emmanuel, there's a hope. Even in humiliation. And there is light in the darkness. And as Isaiah will later say, it will be cause for great joy and rejoicing because light has come. Well, the people then, whether they knew it or not, were waiting on the Messiah. They were waiting on Emmanuel, Jesus born in Bethlehem several, several centuries into the future. Now, But today, we look back on that event. We're no longer waiting for the light to come. We recognize that the light has come. And we rejoice in it. If you're a Christian and the light has entered your heart and you do not walk around in darkness, I would encourage you to look around the world today because it's not that way everywhere. All around us there is still darkness. There are people still living in fear. There are people still searching for answers. Trying to fill the void trying to satisfy their hunger with anything and everything they can get their hands on. Yes, we as believers have found hope in the light of the Gospel. But we still live in this dark place. Daily, we are reminded of the hurt, the suffering all around us in the world. Hate, violence, fear, anger, hopelessness. Heartbreak. So how can we as believers live differently in a world of darkness and distress and gloom? First of all, how do we keep from giving in to the fear and the despair? As God came to Isaiah right away in verse number 11 at the beginning of our passage, do not walk in the way of this people. Don't live like they do. Don't walk like they. How do we avoid walking like everyone else around us? And secondly, what can we do as those who have found the light to bring that to those in the darkness? The answer is simple. We see it in Isaiah's life. He lived in a world of unbelief. He walked through life with doubters and unbelievers, those with questions, those searching for the answers, those people filled with anger and rage toward everybody around them. What did Isaiah do? It's the same thing that we'll do. Hope in God. We look to Him and His Word for insight. We get our perspective from the words of God rather than from superstitious ways. Rather than from what the world has to answer our questions, we look to what God answers our, que- how God answers our questions. We recognize that life is not without its difficulties we too are going to face the struggles of living in this world. We're not immune from heartbreak and loss and suffering and hurt. We get our feelings hurt. Our bodies break down. We suffer tragedy just like every single person that lives in this earth. But we keep our eyes on Christ. We handle it differently. We all experience difficulty in life because we all live in the same dark world one that is corrupted and cursed by sin. Yet Christians, those who look to God and hope in Him, find Him to be a sanctuary, a refuge. We experience satisfaction instead of gloom. Light in the darkness. Hope rather than despair. Calm, peace instead of anger and rage. We're not unaffected by life. But life doesn't have the same effect on one who believes and trusts in God. So the question is very simple. Where are you looking, Christian? Christian, where is your hope and your trust? May our hearts and our lips and our lives echo the words of the psalmist. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our sheep, for our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope.